Well, good morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here for the final uh, episode, if you like, in our series on the, the Jesus trailers. We've been in the book of Isaiah for, oh, is it six, seven weeks? It's been a while. And uh, we've hardly scratched the surface of the book of Isaiah, where uh, Isaiah written 700 years before Jesus came, and yet all the way through, he's giving these trailers, these previews of Jesus, of the Messiah, the anointed one, the servant of the Lord, the coming conqueror, all these different titles, but he keeps pointing forward to Jesus. And so it's been a real thrill uh, to go through the book and to look at different sections and to see how Isaiah, seven centuries before, could create this anticipation. Now, the thing about anticipation is that it sometimes can be a little bit hard to sustain. You know, it's sort of a, a Christmas is coming, and I remember as a child, the anticipation seemed to build from about December the 1st onwards. Once the tree was up, once the decorations were, were up, it, this is it, this is it. And by Christmas Day, I was absolutely wrecked. And so I'd get through the morning and sometime in the afternoon just be completely wiped out emotionally, crying at everything, upset with everyone, because the anticipation had been there for weeks but what about when anticipation goes on for years? Isaiah wrote his book and finished it and died and the next generation came and the next generation and the years became decades and the decades became centuries and days were normal. Nothing was changing and people got into rhythms and routines just like we do. And just as we can come to church and sit here and it'd be completely normal. We've done this for months now and we'll probably be doing this for years and maybe some of us have been doing it for years in other places and, and it can just become so normal that you walk in, you sit down, you know what's going to happen, it's routine and that's exactly what happened on the day that we're going to look at this morning. A day that wasn't uh, within the time frame of Isaiah but was centuries and centuries later. The people got up. It wasn't a Sunday, it was a Saturday. These were Jewish people. They got up and they got ready to go to the synagogue. Did what they always did. Dealt with the uh, breakfast routine and the children squabbling and the can't find anything to wear. I'm sure they did that in those days too, right? And they had the whole, the, all the tensions and all the interactions and then they'd walk to the synagogue. And the synagogue actually, where this took place, is not too dissimilar in size to this room in terms of th this middle bit. Okay, it's quite a, a decent-sized room, and, and they would come in and take their seats of custom, you know, men in a certain place, women in a certain place, children in a certain place, uh, and they would come in, and they sat down, and it was just a normal day. And the prayers and the, uh, the, the scripture readings and, and just the same old routine. I suspect they didn't have coffee like we have, but, but it was a normal day in the synagogue at Nazareth. And then one of the local young men got up. Someone they were very familiar with, someone that had lived in their midst, had grown up in their midst, had done business in their midst. He'd been gone for a few weeks, but he was back and he stood up and he was invited to come and give a reading. And he took a scroll and he opened the scroll and he unfurled it and, and unrolled it to a certain spot. And as he began to read, the, the group of people there would have, would have looked at each other with knowing looks and smiles. And they would have nodded and said, oh, that's a good one. I love this passage. This would have been a, a familiar passage. A passage that filled them with hope and expectation. And yet, within about two or three sentences, the, the mood was changing. Within a few minutes, they'd gone from being uh, thrilled at the reading of this passage to being profoundly upset with this young man. In fact, they were so upset they were ready to kill him. What happened? 
How did a normal Sabbath, just like a normal Sunday like today, how did it go from being just another one to suddenly being uh, controversial, to suddenly being transformative potentially for those that were there if they had grasped what was said? And I suppose we could ask the same thing for us. What would it take for this morning to not be a normal Sunday? What would it take for us to be stirred and changed by the word of God? Let's look at it uh, and see the incident I'm describing. It's not in Isaiah, it's in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4. Someone has a, a church Bible and give us a page number, that would be helpful. I didn't. Say again? 860. Okay, 860. Luke chapter 4. And the story begins in verse 16. Jesus comes to Nazareth. It was customary. It was normal. He went into the synagogue. He grabbed the scroll. And this is what he read, verse 18. He, He looked for it. He found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. This is Isaiah 61. This is a familiar passage because this would have been a passage that was dear to their hearts in Nazareth. And so Jesus reading that would have got knowing looks and nice nods and smiles. What a fine young man he is. And yet the tone is going to change before we get to the end of the the column. Something's going to shift here. You see, what's happened here is that Jesus has taken a, a passage that meant a lot to them and he stopped midway through. He didn't follow through even to the end of a sentence. He stopped at a comma. And then he sat down, which is perplexing. What was he doing? Actually, even in the way that he read it, he was doing something that was designed to stir people. I wonder how he emphasized as he began, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because for the first time in 700 plus years, Isaiah 61 was being read by the person it was describing. And maybe it was his manner, maybe it was his tone that caught their attention. Certainly it was the the stopping midway through. And by doing that, as we'll see in a few minutes, I think he even changed their sense of what the passage was saying. But Jesus is making some incredible, stunning claims right here. First of all, he's claiming that the Spirit of God is upon him. That is, the the Spirit of God has anointed him. Uh, Anointed isn't really a word that that we use a whole lot these days, but uh, it was a, a key word in Jewish world. Okay, we, uh, we translate it backwards into Bible language. In, in uh, Greek, it would be Christ, essentially. He was saying, the Spirit of the Lord has Christed me. Or in Hebrew, the Spirit of the Lord has Messiahed me. That's not technically right, but it, you get the sense. He's claiming to be the Messiah, the Christ, the one that the Spirit of God is on in a special way to do a special purpose. And by claiming Isaiah as his text and saying, this is me, He's pointing to all that Isaiah has unfurled for us in the Jesus trailers. They didn't know they were the Jesus trailers. They thought they were the Messiah trailers. And now Jesus is saying, no, they're the Jesus trailers. Because it's me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he describes three things that he's anointed to do. Look at the the, the next line in the verse, uh, 18. He says, 
to proclaim good news to the poor. And then down in 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's anointed with a preaching role. What he's saying here is that that the poor, the impoverished, the people who don't have anything, there's good news and it's coming from God. God is going to show favor. God is going to be good to them. And there would have been a lot of poor people then. And I I suppose as much as it was true in terms of wealth, and this passage does go on in Isaiah to talk about wealth, I think it, it can, by extension, it can be applied to feeling poor impoverished, like, I've got nothing, I amount to nothing, I count for nothing, I'm a nobody. And Jesus is saying, I've been anointed to come and declare good news, good news from a God who wants to be favorable to people like you. And then the second thing he says is that uh, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And if you drop down two lines, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He's coming to people and saying, you, you feel trapped, you feel oppressed, you feel like you're, you're kind of imprisoned in your circumstances. I've come to set you free. Now, for them, that would have really rung true. Nazareth was a, a, a town in Galilee in the northern part of Israel, just five miles away from the main military center, Sepphoris. And so we've got a sort of a garrison feel to it. Roman soldiers, the clink clink of armor. And these were people that had lived their whole lives with that. And as far back as their memories could stretch and their grandparents and their great-grandparents, it would always be that they were under oppression. It was always the case. Romans and before that it was uh, Greeks and before that Persians and before that Babylon. This went back for centuries to the times of Isaiah. These people had been oppressed. And Jesus says, God has anointed me to declare and and, and create freedom, to set you free. We can only imagine, can't we, what that must feel like, to be under oppressive rule, so that any two or three people gathering in a conversation would create interest from the soldiers nearby. What's happening there? Is there trouble brewing? Any any talk about uh, throwing off the enemy was something that had to be in the quietest of whispers, because... Walls have ears, and people get in trouble, and the tax system was oppressive, and and they're living under this intense negative pressure, and Jesus says, I've come to set set you free. Now, that would have stirred some excitement, wouldn't it? I suppose for us, that feels a bit distant, because we tend to win the wars that we're in, uh, thankfully, But, but imagine maybe not the oppression of a nation, but that feeling of being trapped, I think actually quite a few of us maybe can relate to that. Some habit or sin, some temptation, some issue, some relationship, some skeleton in the closet, something that seems to have a grip on you so that your whole life is lived with this sense of not being free. Even in our situation, what Jesus says here is profound good news. It really is heart-stirring, heart-lifting. And then the third thing, and the centerpiece of the quote, he says, and recovering of sight to the blind. Pulling in Psalm 146 and Isaiah 61, he's pulling some quotes together within this reading here. And what he's saying to them at the center of this is, you know what, I have come as the Messiah to give people sight. 
in the Jewish way of thinking, in the Jewish uh, traditions, giving sight to the blind had become kind of a catchphrase for the Messiah. That's what the Messiah is going to do. And Jesus pulls that in and makes that overt here. As we go through the Gospels, we see that he did that many times where people were blind and he gave them their sight. Uh, literally, physically, but at the same time, spiritually. Here are people that couldn't quite see things clearly. They couldn't quite get the reality of what God was like and what God's plan was. And Jesus came to unveil and to reveal and to make clear. That's exactly where we are today. As we think about our culture, we think about our loved ones and neighbors and relatives that Maybe they're, they're interested. Maybe they're, they're sort of looking in. But, but there's a, a definite sense when you get close to people and you share with them about Jesus and the good news that it's almost like there's something kind of blocking them from seeing it. The Bible says that's true, that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like there are scales in the way. And we, we present the clearest, most thrilling presentation we can. And they're like, I don't, no, I don't quite get it. Can't quite see it. And Jesus says, I'm the one that's going to set people free from that. I'm the one that's going to release the scales so that people can see the truth clearly. What an amazing passage this is. Jesus saying, you're feeling impoverished, I've got good news of God's favor. You're feeling trapped, I'm the anointed one to bring freedom. You can't quite see things clearly, I've come to let you see the reality of who God is. And how he has designed things to bring transformation to your lives. I mean, this is exciting stuff, isn't it? And you'd think that with Jesus saying these kind of things and making these kind of statements, that people would be excited and positive, and, and maybe they were for a couple of minutes. Maybe they weren't. Because in verse 22, they're saying, this is Joseph's son. How, how is it that he's saying these things? And it could be that they're thrilled and they're excited, or it could be that they're a little bit negative, even at this point, because, ah, what's he saying? Why is he talking in these terms? Why is he saying this about seemingly himself? Why does he speak with such confidence? And at the same time, why has he stopped where he stopped? And so in verse 23, um, sorry, verse 21 at the end, Jesus says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Jesus trailers are about me, folks. And they're, they're stirred by that. They're confused. They're stirred. And as we go on, he starts quoting a, a proverb. And, and you, you kind of read it. You go, What's going on here? Is he trying to wind them up? Or is it that Luke hasn't recorded everything that happened? So, for example, when Jesus sat down and he said, Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. What if somebody had said... <clears throat> Jesus, would you mind finishing the reading? And he didn't. And that created tension. What if someone said, are you saying this is... There could have been all sorts of conversation and Luke's giving us a bit of a summary. But what we do have in this next little bit is a real insight to what the tension really was. And the tension isn't just Jesus claiming to be the fulfillment of the Jesus trailers. The tension is what he's saying by this passage about God. Here's, here's the bottom line. The passage in Isaiah 61 is a passage about when God's Messiah comes and he brings good gifts to God's people and he brings judgment to all the nations. 
And Nazareth is sitting in the middle of Galilee of the Gentiles with the the, uh, oppressive regime of Rome hanging around constantly with this sense of we're not free, we want to be free. When will we be free? When the Messiah comes, we'll be free. And in Isaiah 61, the passage goes on to talk about how God will rebuild and make things right for his people. And the Gentiles, the nations will come and serve and they'll be the ones working in the fields and they'll be the vine dressers and and they'll be the slaves and the Jews will be the priests of God. And you can imagine they like that. And yet Jesus had cut that off. He just said favor and good news and blessing for all. And that got under their skin. And just to make sure that he wasn't misunderstood, we then get the rest of this section here in Luke 4, where Jesus said, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Verse 25, but in truth I tell you, and he gives two stories from their history. He gives a story of Elijah, and then he gives a story of Elisha. And it's interesting what he does here, because what he's saying is this. You remember how Elijah was this prophet like 800 years ago? Yeah, 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 we know know Elijah. We know the book of Kings. Well, Elijah, there was this famine and, uh, you know, he needed to uh, have some sustenance and he was going to take care of someone. There was this whole arrangement made with a widow, actually. And Elijah went to this widow and and ended up sort of mutual support and provision. And it was a God thing. Remember that? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we remember that. He did that. Where? Which widow? Which Jewish widow was it? It was a widow up in Sidon. A Gentile widow. What? What? Why are you underlining that, Jesus? All right, well, let me make my point even more clear. Elisha, remember Elisha? There was lots of lepers in Elisha's day. Oh, we know the story of Elisha. We know kings like the back of our hand. Well, Elisha healed a man from leprosy. And there was lots of lepers around. Which man was it again? Oh, let me think. Oh, that's right. It was Naaman the Syrian. Do you see why this is getting under their skin? Because Jesus is proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor and he's not restricting it to the Jewish people. And just to make sure they don't miss his point, he even gives illustrations designed to wind them up in one sense or designed to help them get the point in the better sense that, hey, God's favor and God's goodness and God's blessings and God's gifts are for all people. For people from Sidon, people from Syria, People from Swindon, people from Cardiff, people from Scotland, people from all over the planet. God is not restricted to just the Jews. I wonder if Jesus was thinking about Isaiah 49 that uh, Dave preached to us a couple of weeks ago. It's too small a thing that you bring back the tribes of Jacob. I'm going to make you a light to the nations. You see, the Messiah had this global goal to bring God's goodness to all peoples. And as he presented that in the synagogue that morning, it made them so angry that we're told at the end of the passage, they rose up, they were filled with wrath, they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. They were so upset That Jesus was saying his role, his goal was to bring God's goodness and favor to all nations. That they were ready to kill one of their own. But it wasn't his time. He walked through the crowd and left it behind. Jesus claimed that the Jesus trailers were about him. And when he did that, he wasn't immediately received with open arms and excitement and ticker tape. 
the reception was antagonistic, aggressive. Let's go back and look at that Isaiah 61 passage, really, uh, just for a couple of minutes, just to get a feel for what I've described here. Because this is in a section of Isaiah, the final section, that's absolutely full of anticipations of the coming Messiah. Talking about the Spirit of God that's going to be given, and and, uh, God's blessing that's going to be given, God's judgment that's going to come, holiness is going to be established. It's really a glorious section. And right in the midst of that, verse 61 begins, or sorry, chapter 61 begins, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. It's the Messiah speaking. And he come down into verse 2 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus didn't read that. You know how when you're reading something familiar in church, sometimes people kind of mouth along with you, for God so loved the world that he get, and everyone's mouth starts going because they know the verse. Their mouths were going here. They were, they were ready for it to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, yes, and the day of vengeance. Wait, he stopped. And this passage is talking about God's vengeance against the nations who have oppressed his people. You drop down to verse 4, it talks about building up the ancient ruins and the devastations. Look at verse 5, strangers, foreigners that is, shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations. And in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. And on he goes. God says, I'm going to make a covenant with this people. And it's going to be like a marriage. And this this nation is going to be dressed like a bride. And God's going to say, my delight is in her. And all of this uh, anticipation of God's goodness to his people that is going through this passage here, right the way into chapter 62. Look at 62 verse 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall be no more termed desolate. You shall be called my delight is in her, Hephzibah. And your land shall be called married for the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married. End of verse 5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Isaiah was full of this picture of a God who was so good that he was ready to restore and redeem And bring people back into a relationship with him where he's delighting and he's celebrating over them. And the people knew that. And they'd heard that. But that was built into a section that in their mind requires God to judge everybody else. They couldn't cope with God's goodness going beyond them. And Jesus, therefore, was offensive. Jesus therefore bothered them by making it clear that he had come to fulfill the Jesus trailers and in coming to do that, he was going to give all of God's good gifts. Actually, in Luke 4, the way it works out, I think we get a glimpse of how he's going to do that. You think about it, when Jesus stood up in that synagogue and he presented the text and he stopped short and he didn't follow through on what they were waiting for, the good bit about beating up the Gentiles, and then he talks about the, the fulfillment being in him, and then he reinforces his point that, you know, God has been good to Gentiles before, Naaman and the widow of Zarephath, and, and he goes through all of that and they get so worked up that they're ready to kill him. But it wasn't his time. 
As you go on through the Gospels and you see the Jesus trailers being fulfilled, what you have is all of those anticipations, all of those pictures, all of those uh, descriptions that Isaiah gave coming to fulfillment in the life and ministry of Jesus. As he came to a blind person and felt compassion and gave them sight and then turned on the religious leaders and told them that you're the blind ones. You need to see things clearly. As he came to a, a widow whose son had died and therefore she had no provision, no one to care for her and he set her free from the prison that was about to face her in life. The, the challenge of having nothing, of being destitute and poor by raising her son to life. Jesus was showing God's compassion. And as he did that, as he went about his ministry for those years, weaving its way all the way through, is a, a thread of compassion and concern and love for the nations. He fed a multitude of Jews with just a little bit of bread and fish. But then the disciples scratched their head when he fed a multitude of Gentiles with just a bit of bread and some fish. They didn't anticipate that. They didn't see that coming. They thought, no, no, he's just going to do it for Jews, not for the Gentiles. But he did it for the Gentiles. He did healings on one side of the Sea of Galilee and they were all thrilled. And then on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, among the Gentiles, he, he set people free from demons and did healings there too. And they were scratching their heads going, we couldn't see that one coming. All the way through, Jesus is concerned to do what God had given him to do. And it wasn't just to give God's good gifts to God's little people. It was to give God's good gifts to all people. And I think that's why we here this morning should be thrilled about the book of Isaiah. Not just because the Messiah has come, but because Isaiah, as you read it through, has this theme of God's goodness to the nations. Yes, there's judgment. Yes, God's going to deal with sin and those that stand against his truth. But God's plan is for people of all nations to receive all of God's good gifts so that we can all be part of the bride, so that God can speak of us, that he is delighted of us, that he can rejoice over us, that we can be welcomed into God's presence and discover this God who we thought was dim and distant and uh, unaccessible, kind of a dispenser of good gifts like St. Nick, discover that actually he doesn't just give good gifts and then disappear. He wants to give us himself. We come into God's presence in the end, we'll discover that the Trinity, the, the glorious love of the Trinity is toward us and that God delights to have us with him. Not just Jesus delighting to have the God, the Trinity, Father, Son, by the Spirit, thrilled that Tim's there and that Hannah's there and that Aaron's there and that Peter's there. Because that's the heart of God revealed in the person of Jesus. Isaiah gives us glimpses. Jesus says, here it is. Isaiah gives us hints. Uh, Jesus says, let me show you what I mean. Isaiah speaks of good gifts. Jesus says, don't just get stuck in 61. Don't just get stuck in the good news to the poor and the setting free of captives and the sight for the blind. Remember 53, pierced for our transgressions. Because ultimately, that's how it works with Jesus. Ultimately, he doesn't just come uh, sort of on a sleigh with some uh, flying reindeer and give us gifts and disappear. He comes and he gives us himself. They were so upset with him that day, they were ready to throw him off a cliff. Not so fast. Not yet. Three years later, he allowed them to take him to the Roman authorities. 
and to be condemned for sins he'd never done and to carry that piece of wood out to the uh, the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And he could have stopped it. He could have resisted at any point. He could have called on the angels to come and release him and yet he allowed them to stretch his arms out and to pound those nails through his arms and through his feet to suspend him humiliated, naked, to die the worst of deaths, and in doing so, to say to the world, this is how much God loves you. I'm the fulfillment of the Jesus trailers. I have come to give all God's good gifts to all people, and I'm going to do so by giving myself. If we had another seven weeks, we could still go through more of Isaiah. We could find more passages. We could see even more. And it would all be reinforcing the same thing. God is good. God loves. God is generous. God wants to give more than we can even begin to imagine. But he doesn't do it based on whether we've been good or not. He doesn't keep a list and check it twice and see if you're naughty or nice and then say, right, you deserve it, you don't, because the truth is none of us deserve it. There's not a single person in this room or on this planet that deserves any of God's good gifts. And I think that's why Jesus is so offensive to us. I think that's why we can read the good news of Jesus today in churches and in in the streets and we can tell people about it and people's response can be anger and aggression instead of delight and, and being thrilled by it. Because of what Jesus gives, the way he gives it, it just grates on our pride. I don't want you to give me stuff. I want to earn it. Really? I want, to do a, I want to do my best and I want to prove that I'm somebody. Why? You see, Jesus is so offensive, not because he's rude, not because he's trying to wind us up, but because he is so absolutely different to us. We're so caught up in ourselves. We're so full of our own importance. And then we see the most important person that's ever lived giving himself away to death on a cross. And it's offensive. And Jesus says, I want to give you all God's good gifts. Will you accept me? I suppose that's where we've got to end the series. Because for all the the delight and thrill that it is to look at the document of Isaiah and then to see the fulfillments in Jesus, where it's got to end is not 2,700 years ago or even 2,000 years ago. It's got to end right here in our hearts as we respond to We're responding to, to Jesus as he gives himself to us through the word, by the cross, by the spirit. He, he's inviting us today to say, look, today's not a normal day. Today's a moment where you have been brought by God's providence into a place where you've heard about Jesus being the fulfillment of all God's plans. What's your response? It's amazing if you, you try to make sense of it, how God's goodness can stir antagonism or apathy from us. The only explanation is because we want to be somebody ourselves. The world says Christians are so proud. The world needs to hang out with us and chat and we need to be real with them and say, actually, I'm not proud. I'm an absolute failure. I'm 100% a failure. I just accept God's goodness. And I don't try to earn it. And I don't try to be good enough or work it up or try harder or, or make a better effort. I, I say, oh God, I'm bankrupt. 
I am absolutely poor. I am absolutely trapped and I am absolutely blind and I need you to do the work. I need you to set me free. I need you to to give me the wealth of your father. I need you to give me eyes to see. And when we say, oh God, I surrender, I am totally, totally in need of you. Then God, with his arms stretched out on the cross, reaches out and embraces us. Draws us in like a bride to say, I love you, I delight in you, and I'm thrilled that you're mine. The Jesus trailers should stir our hearts. The Jesus reality should change our hearts. But just like people in Nazareth, just like people all across the world, it's very possible to take a transformative moment and turn it back into a nothing. And just to say, no, I'm fine. And I, I suppose as we think about this, just in closing as well, we need to think about this, not just for, for the sake of those who have never trusted Christ, but for all of us. Because actually, all of us have the tendency, don't we, to become somebody again. To kind of go into retreat and allow ourselves to become the center of our own universes. And I think Jesus wants to come to us. And to say to us, hey, I died for you. I want to give you all of God's good gifts. Are you prepared to accept? Or does it bother you? Have you grown proud? We're going to move into a time of communion. Just a simple thing that Jesus invited his followers to do. To take a a little piece of bread and a a little bit of juice. And it, it isn't that it's magical or it's mystical in itself. It's just a representative, but it's a representative of something so amazing that the God of the universe, his son, should choose to come and take on human flesh and become a human. Not just for a season, but forever. And he came for us. And here's his body represented. And he wants us to take him into ourselves. It's just bread, but it's representative of our owning of him. And the juice represents his blood that he poured out to say, I love you this much. And he shed his blood and he died in our place. And we take the juice just to, just to represent that, oh Lord, I need you. It's only by your blood. It's only by your goodness. And so we're going to have just a couple of minutes of quiet just to reflect. And as we reflect, maybe our minds go back to Luke 4 and we imagine being in that synagogue. Maybe we go back to Isaiah and we think of some of the highlights that we've seen in the last few weeks. But let's make sure that we allow our hearts to be right here as well. Thinking about the fact that Jesus came and Jesus went all the way to the cross to pay the ultimate price because God loves you. Sometimes all we can say is, oh God, I love you too. Thank you.